can, you know, through Aboriginal ways, just reach out to some of our mob. Working with the wider non-Aboriginal community and working with our own community together allows us to start eating. In the past, you know, people know who they are and that type of thing, but there hasn't been something there to bring everything together, to bring people together, and Native Title has done that. Nina Marnie, welcome to Aboriginal Wayne, produced by South Australian Native Title Services. I'm your host today, Joy Lothian, and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Ghana people whose land we are recording on. I pay my respects to Ghana elders past and present. Each week on the show, we share First Nations stories and Native Title news from right across South Australia. So let's get into it. Dr. Jared Thomas, a Nukunu man from the Southern Flinders Ranges, is a research fellow for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander material culture and arts at the South Australian Museum and UniSA. He is also a curator, an arts administrator, an internationally award-winning author, and an all-around change maker. Dr. Thomas received a Churchill Fellowship in 2019 for his subject matter investigating colonised people's interpretive strategies in permanent gallery displays in Aotearoa, Norway, Canada and the US. He recently returned from eight weeks travelling to those countries. Aboriginal Way sat down with him recently to chat about his experiences. So Jared, welcome to Aboriginal Way. I'm here with you at the South Australian Museum. Firstly, could you start by telling us a little bit about your background in your own words? Yep, thanks for having me on, uh, Joy. So, yeah, I'm a Nukuna Nadjuri person from the Southern Flinders Ranges, uh, and I grew up in Port Augusta, and my mum's Aboriginal family are Dodds from Winton, Queensland. Um, when I was quite young, like around 16, um, I decided I wanted to be a writer, primarily to talk about Aboriginal experience, history and aspiration, and really to try to address racism through through writing. Um, so, yeah, I've worked in a whole range of different roles in the arts and also worked as a lecturer for almost a decade. Um, and since 2018, I've worked at the South Australian Museum. So for people who don't know too much about it, can you tell us what a Churchill Fellowship is? Okay, so the Churchill Fellowships offer a diverse range of people from all walks of life an opportunity to travel overseas for four to eight weeks to explore a topic or issue that they are passionate about. And um, yeah, with that as well, no qualifications are required in order to apply for a Churchill Fellowship. Um, And really the topic of your proposed project is limitless, um, providing that it offers a benefit to Australia and that you have a willingness to share your findings with the Australian community upon your return from the Churchill. Okay, so how did you come about being the recipient of this prestigious award and and how did you choose your subject matter? Okay, well, with with the application process, so in regards to my development through my work and looking at the changes that I would like to make in the South Australian Museum and how I contribute to how Aboriginal stories are told within South Australian cultural institutions and, and I guess Australian cultural institutions. Um, 
for me, I just, I really wanted to see examples of practice overseas and particularly to look at what happens when First Nations people have control of their own collections and interpretations of their of their artifacts and their cultures. So that was really the the motivation and then it was a um, a written application and then there was an interview process. So I think there was a shortlisting maybe down to 10 people. It was quite small from South Australia and I think there were seven selected in 2019. And you were one of them? It was one of them, yeah. And um, yeah, an incredible experience, of course. Like um, one of the countries we forgot to mention is, is Finland. Um, so to, to start in Oslo in, in Norway and to go to Finland and then to um, Toronto, New York, Washington, Vancouver, uh, Auckland, Wellington and back to Auckland. So over two months. Um, yeah, and just meeting with directors of museums and galleries and curators and artists and First Nations community members, academics, um, and engaging with the public just to see what the public thought about particular displays, exhibits, how their cultures were being handled, speaking with non-Aboriginal people and international visitors, just seeing how they responded to different exhibits as well. And you mentioned to me earlier, Jared, that you have visited some of those countries before. How have you seen them change since the last time you visited? Yeah, okay. So, so yeah, I had visited most of those, most of those cities apart from the Scandinavian countries like um, Norway and Finland, I, I hadn't been to. The others I had. Um, but, of course, when I went there, I even visited some of the museums that I went to look at. But... I was looking at them through a very different lens because my knowledge of of course has increased since commencing my employment in 2008 and the 18 in the museum um, but there has been some monumental changes and so I was last in New York and Washington and at the time that Trump was running for presidency um, the first time and I thought that flying, particularly into New York, it was going to be a world in chaos after COVID. And what I just didn't expect and I was pleasantly surprised about was just the, the transformation and the progressiveness um, that's occurring in America. So, um, for example, I guess three things have had a big impact on America. That is Black Lives Matters. Um, me too movement and also activism around climate change so you know sometimes speaking to non-indigenous um, directors you could just see that they were making the changes that need to be made so the employment of indigenous people um, people from diverse backgrounds and women and within those major institutions like you know the natural history museum in new york um, while the, whilst there's some galleries that are outdated and, and 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 not good practice they have some of the best models of indigenous representation in the world in those galleries um, and they're also using their collections to tell the story of deep time and climate change so yeah so I think I was really shocked to just see how progressive America has be, been has is becoming because we see a different story in the media we see the story of a very vocal, aggressive minority. 
Uh, whereas I think lots of America is getting on with it and just doing some great things. And this is all really in the last five years. In the last five years. And also in Canada. I mean, I didn't... When I was in Vancouver meeting at the Museum of Anthropology um, with the staff, they told me that on the Friday afternoon uh, there was a national holiday on the 30th of September, which is to mark... Um, to mark the the equivalent of our stolen generations so you know children that didn't return from residency schools and kids that removed from their family and also in new zealand in july they have uh an, a national holiday holiday for matariki which is which is um you know that the, the maori uh spiritual beliefs with the pleiades so the, the seven sisters so to see those kind of two transformations was also really incredible. Yeah. And you mentioned best practice in these cultural displays. What is best practice? Um, I think to put it simply, it's, it's allowing Aboriginal people or First Nation people to tell our own stories. Um, and sometimes to allow some contention within those stories as well. So... So in terms of what is best practice, simply I'd say that it's about Indigenous people being able to tell our own stories. Um, so it's our interpretation of our material culture and, and our history and our experience. And the, the revitalised Northwest Coast Hall of the Smithsonian Natural History Museum in New York, that was a really great example because you can see that the the changes to the gallery were, were led by about 10 First Nations people. And there were also points of difference and contestation in, in their thoughts about a museum. And I think that's really interesting and important because, of course, we don't all think the same um, about particular situations. So um, the other thing is, yeah, putting, putting Aboriginal people um, up front and centre in terms of employment. So you know, the employment of Indigenous curators um, to be able to lead that process. That was evident everywhere you went? Um, wasn't evident everywhere, but in in the... So where there was non-Indigenous kind of museum workers, there, in some of the institutions, like, their methodology was really great in, in terms of they were there, they were there more as facilitators and then really enhancing those First Nation communities to do the work that they needed to do. So it was a different kind of process, but in, you know, there was... Some, the Sami people, the Indigenous people of, like, Scandinavia, um, they they have a Sami parliament, so the, the governments provide funding to their parliament for the parliament to determine how they use that to maintain and develop culture. So they, they invest into their own their own museums, right? Because they want to be telling their own stories and they want to be um, having a connection with their cultural material, so their artefacts. Um, so I saw some models where they were Indigenous owned and operated. Um, so in terms of best practice, uh, a lot of Sami museum workers wanted to work in institutions where Sami language was the spoken language rather Norwegian or Finnish. Um, yeah, that, that was really interesting. So just looking at how to engage, like it's good engagement with First Nations communities. 
Um, really good engagement around uh, collections management, repatriation, staffing, and then also, you know, the permanent displays that are, are within a, um, an institution tell you about how the institution values Indigenous people. So if you're doing it right, you will attract good museum, First Nations museum workers. And I was going to ask about repatriation. Is, is that happening in a lot of places? Yep. So in terms of repatriation, um, of course, there's two lots of repatriation. There's repatriation of human remains and there's also repatriation of material, culture and artefacts. Um, so, you know, my museum, the South Australian Museum, is very proactive in, in human remains repatriation and also um, artefact repatriation. There are a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander collections internationally. Um, and sometimes those collections, communities, wanted them to be with the museum because they wanted international people to have an understanding of Aboriginal culture. And, but then there are some objects that have gone in with, let's just say there was a, there was a you know, imbalanced power relationship in regards to the way they were acquired. So international museums were asking me about what needed to happen or sometimes they were doing it. Um, so the Smithsonian's in Washington, they, they had just been engaged in repatriation back to human remains, repatriation back to South Australia. Um, so really supportive. Um, so it's not really the situation where, you know, most museums in the world, they do want to be involved in repatriation of objects. Um, yeah, you have to be discerning between what needs to come back and what communities have um, wanted to be placed in museums. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Museums are not just about what is on display to the public. They are heavily involved in these artefacts being seen by people from all over the world, but also returning to their culture. They're quite active. They, they are active and, and, you know, Indigenous people, First Nations people have a kind of complex relationship with museums because um, sometimes we know like even within my own family we we have objects from Nukuna people that were donated to the museum in the 1920s or actually they were um, my family members were commissioned to make objects so they were paid to make objects to place in the museum in the 1920s um, which is very different to just objects being removed but there are some objects that were just removed um, so you know, the, the Sami people, they referred to their museums and their archives as elders, which I found fascinating. Um, and so they said, you know, the museum isn't there to replace their elders in our communities, but the museum can be used to educate our own people and the broader and the world about what Sami culture is. So for them, it was very important to have control of their own material culture in order to provide access to their own people and to control the interpretation. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, and also with repatriation, Sami, in, a, in an Australian context and many First Nations contexts, when we think about repatriation, it's return of objects back to our communities. Um, in a Sami uh, context, they see repatriation as returning Sami objects and international museums 
back to Sami museums. So it's, it's a very different kind of paradigm. Yeah, really shows the importance of those institutions, though, in, in society and in culture. Yeah, and I think this is the really incredible thing about museums. And, you know, what, what I saw at museums, and particularly like the African-American Museum, so the, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, um, just the role that it plays in nation building. Um, so that, that particular museum steps us through, we, we start at pre-colonial Africa, and then we go into policies of, of colonization and slavery. So we see the whole experience of slavery and then, you know, slavery on the American continent and political resistance and violence through to, you know, political wins. Um, so very, very challenging truth telling. Uh, and then we go into, you know, just like hair tingling um, examples of African-American achievement and so you have these kind of difficult and very celebratory st stories happening in the one space. And, um, you know, there's so much power in representation. And when we look at Aboriginal Australia, one of, the, one of the contributors to our dispossession is the narrative that was put in place by non-Aboriginal people. So it was a way that we were represented, the way that we were described and a lot of the time it was it was myth and it was inaccurate. So what happens when we as Aboriginal people are able to tell our own stories? How does that change our relationship with each other and our relationship with broader society? Um, another example is Te Papa in New Zealand. Um, Te Papa is a, is a treaty-based museum that represents both Pakia, so Pakia is a term for non-Aboriginal people, um, and Māori. So, and all of these countries that I went to, by the way, they all have a treaty with their Indigenous peoples. So it's important to remember that Australia is the only country in the Commonwealth without a treaty with its Indigenous peoples. Um, so there's a treaty or there's a rights-based agenda, and under those treaties, um, First Nations people uh, really see the importance of their representation through museums. Okay, so it's kind of like enshrined in the treaty their ability to represent themselves. So it gives them a whole different kind of platform to operate from. So the, the treaty to Papa as a treaty museum, um, you have non-Indigenous and Māori perspectives operating in the same space. And, and it's about... It's, it's a nation-building exercise. Yeah. So the New Zealand government um, had bipartisan support for the establishment of this cultural centre 25 years ago. Today, you know, New Zealand politicians, uh, you know, officials, that's where they take dignitaries to. First stop is to Papa. So it's really celebrated and loved. And, um, yeah, just, just an example of, of what can occur when you have that type of support and how it can kind of shift the dynamic of First Nations and non-Indigenous relations. And again, like I, I did my postdoctorate in New Zealand in 2012 or 13. So I spent six months there uh, working from the University of Wakato. And, you know, in that 10 years, there's been radical transformation as well. Like they've got whole television programs 
that where you've got non-Indigenous presenters speaking in Māori. Um, newsreaders like greeting in Māori, uh, naming cities, etc. in Māori language. So, um, you know, there's still, it's not perfect. There's no country where there's a perfect situation, but it's a lot better and it's getting better. Yeah, they they are, and I think, you know, there's. It's hard. It's really hard to compare indigenous peoples of the worlds and our situations. Um, we're all a bit the same and all, all a bit different, um, and partly the political economic context of countries determines, you know, how indigenous people are treated, and I think in these countries sometimes they just have um, more numbers you know, or a different kind of um, early colonial experience that makes things possible in the present. And how was it returning to Australia after this trip? Um, well, I was, I was really looking forward to coming home, um, but it was really difficult to tell you the truth because I just landed back in Australia at the time when um, there was a lot of debate in the media uh, regarding the Australian Diamonds Netball team and Danelle Wallum's refusal to wear the, uh, the the top associated with Gina Reinhart and all of that debate. Um, and then there was also the um, the murder of Cassius Turvey. Um, and again, really negative media around that. And um, that was quite difficult to see given these incredible experiences I'd, I'd had with First Nations people. And seeing a shift, like, internationally, like, so, you know, September 29th, I'm watching television in Canada, the news, and the news reporters all talking about the national holiday and what that means. And so everyone wears a, a, a an orange T-shirt or a top to respect those, you know, those First Nations people that were in residential schools. I woke up and, um, you know, stepped out the front door to go get a coffee and on the on the street um everyone was in an orange top and and they they this is the non-indigenous you know public um and walking around that city the, the other day just that incredible kind of respect and um that gesture so to come back here um and then to think about you know it's it's really it's really positive that we're having these discussions about um voice and treaty and truth um, but it, it does sadden me that we're just so far behind. Um, yeah, so it has been difficult, but, you know, look, I'm, I'm really I'm excited about um, the, the desire to, to create change within the South Australian Museum and the knowledge I've acquired and just what I can share with colleagues um, here in the museum and, and across the state um, about the types of things that I saw in those those international institutions. Yeah, so it's brought you some fresh perspectives for your work here and also you're involved with Takari, aren't you? Uh, with Takari, um, I have been involved in conversations and uh, I'm not formally uh, engaged with Takari. Um, but I guess, yeah, like I will be providing um, presentations, so public presentations about my Churchill findings and we'll be sharing them with the Takari team. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited about having conversations with the Takari team just to show them 
examples of uh, the best practice that I witnessed. What do you hope to do with your learnings? You mentioned some presentations. Yeah, so I'll, I'm writing a formal report um, and in that I'll be sharing some of the best ingredients of, of uh, institutions uh, around Indigenous representation. Um, I'll be doing the, the public presentations, so members of the public are all invited to come along and listen when when they're organised. They'll, they'll most likely be through the South Australian Museum or University of South Australia. Um, I may be doing some of them interstate to different institutions as well. Um, maybe I'll be recording something just to be able to place online so people can access it at any point. Um, and I'll be writing a series of academic papers because there's so many different angles um, when you're looking at museum practice. So uh, some of those articles will be on how to develop a First Nations workforce within a, within a museum. Um, so, you know, the interviews that I conducted with First Nations uh, museum workers, like sharing some of their experiences through to different ways to display art. Um, Sometimes, like, what does it look like when it's thematic or chronological or non-linear? Um, uh, repatriation, um, the role of ritual in institutions. So at the Smithsonian, for example, the non-Indigenous staff, along with the Indigenous staff, were telling me about the importance of, of ritual. So engaging in ritual led by the communities on, on which on whose land um, the institutions are situated. And they talked about that as really um, providing them a new level of respect for the objects they're working with and the communities they're working with. So th there's just so many different angles to write from. So, Jared, why is working in the museum sector important to you? Well, it's, so, it's something that I'm so passionate about because I believe that if we as Aboriginal people get to have control of our own stories and representation with institutions, it will um, provide us with a better sense of our, of our history and culture and experience. Uh, it'll engender greater pride um, amongst us as, as people, um, seeing, you know, seeing the incredible achievements of our people over time. Um, it'll help to change the relationship with with mainstream Australia or the broad, broader Australia and internationally, which will uh, create better outcomes for Aboriginal people in all facets of life. So representation is really powerful. When we can tell our story truthfully, that will be what creates change. And we've already seen that over the last 30 years. Um, you know, the, the, the advent of Aboriginal media, NITV, our great, um, uh, you know, fil film writers and directors working in film and television, yeah. um, and also our Aboriginal musicians and our visual artists. So in the last 30 years in particular, there's been this huge explosion of Aboriginal expression, and it's when people get to know us through our stories and having that engagement that we, we have real social change. Well, thank you for sharing with Aboriginal Way. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Aboriginal Way. We'll catch you next time with more stories from across South Australia. Bye.